The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain inside information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is your host, John Whitbeck, coming to you from the D.C. metro area today. And with us is a very special guest that we're excited to have, Doug Glenn, whose experience in the federal government, his own personal experience with mental health and and treatment is going to be very helpful, I think, for a lot of folks in this D.C. metro area who work in the federal government. We have tens of thousands of federal workers. They're the lifeblood of our economy and what we do. There's nothing more important on the Mind Itself podcast than having people be able to relate to those that we have on as guests and how they can help with life experience, with the things they've been through and how they can continue our mission here at the Mind Itself podcast to break the stigma of mental health, which as everybody who listens knows is our main focus here. As everybody else also knows, we are the inter- uh, podcast about the intersection of law and mental health. But the only way we're going to really have a great conversation is to sometimes go off and talk about personal stories. And Doug's one of those people that have been gracious enough to to spend some time with us sharing his personal story. Doug, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So, Doug, you are a federal civil servant for over 30 years, I believe. 20. I've been in the federal government for uh, 30 years, but 20 of it as as an executive. Okay. So you, we're going to refrain from getting into specifics about what agency you're with, but I think you told me it's the kind of agency where things that go boom, right? That is true. Yes. (laughs) So uh, great. Well, look, we are, especially on the Virginia side uh, of the DC metro area, a lot of folks involved in, in what you're involved in. And I wanted to talk to you today a little bit first about your experience in the federal government and your sort of the way you came up and get a little bit of bit out of your history. Well, thank you, John. Um, yeah, I've been very uh, privileged to to serve uh, serve my country as a, a civil servant. I, I started out in the private sector doing audits and consulting, and then uh, made a quality of life decision and, and moved into the federal government. Who uh, I'm glad to say has been very supportive of uh, mental health. I, I first got into became familiar with mental health and, and therapists as a teenager when uh, my dad died at a, when I was uh, just coming up on my 11th birthday which is, was certainly traumatic. And I remember I, I went there initially defiantly, to, to be honest, because uh, I didn't really believe in it. Um, my mom wanted me to go. She, she knew I was wrestling with some things, even though I didn't at the time. I, well, I guess I was probably 14 when I had my first therapy appointment. And after a couple of sessions, I remember I was talking to a therapist about doodles. And he said, you know, doodles can tell you a lot. And I thought it was crazy. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, if you, know, if you have a doodle that you that is recurring, I'd love to take a look at it. And sure enough, I did. And so I brought in this doodle that I would often draw when I was in high school and bored. It basically looked, it was like a triangle pointing up, but the bottom or the base of the triangle was also kind of pointing up as well. So there was two, two points at the bottom kind of pointing down and, and one pointing up, if that makes sense. And there's all these large, these dark lines at 90 degree angles at the inside. And one one session, I brought it in, and said, "Hey, uh, here you go. I, I draw this a lot. I have no idea what it is, but if you, I'd be very interested to see if uh, or hear if you have think it means anything." And he 
calmly took it and said, well, you know, let me spend some time with it and I'll, I'll get back to you. So I come back a couple weeks later and he says, hey, you know, I think I figured out your doodle. And I said, oh, this ought to be interesting. Okay, what? And he says, turn it upside down. And I did. And he said, I think it's a broken heart. And all of a sudden, boom, the emotion came flooding out. And I realized, wow, there's obviously a whole lot of emotion in me that I wasn't aware of. And that's when I really started to invest in therapy and, and started to get a whole lot out of it. How long have you been in therapy in your life? Has it been oh. continuous or has it been sort of an off and on thing? Yeah, off and on. You know, I, I look at therapy like uh, exercise. You get out of it what you put into it. And at first, and I, and I think a lot of people regard therapy as, hey, it's for people with problems. And that is true. I mean, if you've got emotional baggage, then absolutely therapy can help you get rid of it. But you can also use therapy to help improve other aspects of your life. I've, um, I've done a lot of presenting on leadership across the country, actually. And if you, if you read the latest leadership material, it talks about emotional quotient and that the strongest leaders have strong emotional EQ, uh, uh, emotional quotients, if you will, because they're the ones who are best equipped to, the more in touch with them, themselves and the more aware they are of what's going on inside of themselves, the more aware and capable they are to realize the impacts that they're having on others and the better able they are to connect with other people. And it is, I think we all know those relationships and the ability to connect with people is, is critical to, uh, to getting things done in, in large and small organizations. Just as a caveat, I should say the views that I express here are just my personal views and are not connected with any agencies that I've, that I've worked for. Let me ask you this, Doug. Tell me about your history and your career and sort of what you've done and, and you sort of where you went to school first job, going through your federal career. So maybe some of the folks listening that are have a similar uh, story can relate to, to what you've been through. I went to school uh, thinking I wanted to be an engineer. What was sadly mistaken, uh, a year of engineering at the University of Colorado taught me that uh, engineering is not for me. So I switched to business since most of my credits uh, transferred over. Moved back home, realized I didn't want to stay in the town I grew up in and on a wild hair. And I would not have been able to do this if I didn't have a strong level of a strong and healthy level of self-esteem and confidence. But I left my job in San Diego, packed up everything I owned in a trailer that I built from Home Depot and zigzagged across the country for three weeks visiting friends and family uh, and then landed out here in Virginia with a high school friend that needed a roommate and with no job. And that's how I got started. Actually ended up, I sold the trailer, made some money on it, built three more trailers and sold those just to pay my rent for a month till I found a job. Started doing audits and consulting uh, around uh, federal agencies, worked at small and, and large firms. And then, like I said, I, um, well, I, I made a quality of life decision, actually, because I, I had a cancer diagnosis in my uh, early 30s, which uh, was pretty uh, serious. Uh, it actually had a... Uh, the, the uh, mortality rate was 75% within five years. So that obviously grabbed my attention. And as I, uh, as I started to put that behind me, I realized I didn't want to uh, work in uh, you know, outrageous hours. And I wanted, I wanted to have a, a quality of life. I mean, I loved my job, and, but I did. But there's plenty of other things I, I love as well. So uh, I switched. I became a, a Fed uh, working in the financial industry. And it's been a, it's been a really great experience because the, the entire federal government is trying to get 
a clean audit opinion. And the place I work is the uh, the one agency that doesn't have a clean audit opinion. So uh, we're here shoring up our financial controls and trying to position the United States government to deliver a clean audit opinion to the American people. So that's kind what of my professional first, story. What was your first job in the federal government? I worked at the Census Bureau, putting together uh, financial statements. Okay. And how long were you there? Uh, three years. Three years. And then um, an executive opportunity came up and went in for an interview that was mediocre, to be honest. But I did something I'm very, very proud of to this day. I uh, I, I drafted a position paper. At the, at the time, the agency I was applying to was General Services Administration. And they had six main issues in their audit report that were problems. And so I wrote a position paper about how I'd approach each of those problems. And I sent it to the CFO, said, hey, appreciate your time. Thanks for the interview. You know, obviously you have to make the uh, selection that's, that you feel is best, but I used to get paid to solve problems like this. So here's how I'd approach it. I hope you find it useful. And uh, that made the difference. That got me my first executive job in my, uh, my mid thirties. Was that in the private sector or was that? No, that was, that was with the feds. That was the general services administration. Kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like the Costco for the federal government. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with it. What, Describe for me, though, what's an executive position versus something else? Well, there's, there's, there's levels. You know, government rates and ranks everything. And there's, right. uh, the higher levels are called the uh, senior executive service that has special pay banding, special uh, benefits and privileges and restrictions. It's the one where um, they, can, they can fire you at will, basically. Um, so it's, uh, you serve it at, at the will of the president. So, Doug, uh, one of the things that I wanted to explore with you as part of this was, you know, there's got to be something unique about being a federal worker, whether you're, you know, you work at, at the an entry level or you're in an executive position like you've been or in, in the agency where you're at. What are some of the stressors that may be unique to a federal government uh, employee or federal, federal employee or, or even a political appointee in the federal government that, that might be different than other professions? Uh, that's, a, that's actually a very good question, John. Thank you. In the federal government, we are blessed with, and I, I know folks can't see me, but that, that blessed with is in quotes, uh, blessed with lots of rules and regulations about what we, mostly about what we can't do. And when you work in large organizations with lots of rules and regulations, the ability to drive change is hampered. Everybody gripes about the government being very slow to react. And that's for a reason. It's because you don't, you don't want the government, you know, jumping up, reaching uh, snap decisions or, or taking actions, inappropriate actions way too fast. So my point is the ability to drive change is very hard in the government. And it really takes your relationships and, and a knowledge of, of the issues that, um, that are in play and being able to collaborate with others to, to reach positive outcomes. And it's, you know, in the private sector, I think just any decision that promotes profitability, nine times out of 10 is going to be a good one. It's not that simple in the federal government. I mean, there's all sorts, there's compliance with rules that we have to worry about. There's efficiency that we have to worry about. There's interest from members of the Hill that we have to worry about. There's our good, our, just our individual concept of whatever good government is that was driving what we're trying to change. But we have 
all these different things that in theory should be aligned, but they are often in conflict and give it and, and, and raise all sorts of opportunities to thwart and delay what positive changes you're trying to make. Do you feel like that's a function of the system itself or the people that are operating in the system? I think it's the system itself and for the most part, for good reason. I, I have no doubt that every rule and reg we have to adhere to is there for a very good reason and it was very well intentioned. A lot of times these rules are on the books for decades. Maybe things have changed. Maybe they're preventing issues or, or possibilities that just aren't in play. That Well, if you, if you just look at the fact that we haven't had a federal budget for, uh, we've been an omnibus for, for since the Obama administration, right? Well, we've, we've, they, have passed, um, they have passed appropriations, but it is often delayed, which puts the government under continuing resolutions, um, right. which is right. tough because then we can't, we kind of have to stay the course. We can't, we're, we're paralyzed to launch any new initiatives until that budget is passed. Right. So you identified a, a pretty significant, look, if, if you're in the private sector, I was, you know, with my law firm or my, you know, my podcast, you know, if, if, if my ability to affect change was impacted by outdated or outmoded processes or regulations, it would be impossible to work at your best, at your optimum. And that would be a significant stressor, especially if you're in a leadership position. So that makes perfect sense. That it would be. Let me add to that too, uh, just to ask you, what about the uncertainty? We have had a, a spate of government shutdowns. And for those of you who are listening, not in the DC metro area, the impact of a government shutdown on the DC metro area economy and psychology is, is nothing short of catastrophic almost. I mean, it is a major imposition on the lives of federal workers and their families, really something that whether you're Republican, Democrat, or independent, you ought to be uh, concerned with because the, the, the folks that suffer the most are federal workers. Would you agree with that, Doug? You know, I think, I think we all suffer because, you know, certainly federal spending is a huge part of the United States economy. Right. And it has a direct impact on GDP. So I, I'd venture to say we all suffer. Right. No, I, you know, and one of the things that, that, we, that I've noticed since I moved here, I don't know, in the 90s, was uh, you know everybody knows someone is married to someone or works with someone or has clients who work for the federal government in some way and, and so it would it would be it, you know it's, it's an ecosystem unlike anything else and it, and it's really that the center of that is the federal government so when it when it shuts down and goes dark it, it you're you're right it impacts everybody what about some of the 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 you know quality of life things that go along with i mean you know a lot a lot of folks that that work in the federal government your location will remain nameless, but you know, commute, for example, you know, this is a quality of life issue that we've had yet to solve in this area. You know, you know, talk about some of the stressors of just getting to work. I mean, Virginia, Maryland, and DC are not easy places to commute. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. But uh, ironically, uh, COVID nineteen has changed that. I've, gosh, for the last nine ten months, I've been able to drive to and from work during rush hour on cruise control. <laughs> See, and that, and that is absolutely amazing. I mean, I whether you before COVID, you leave at five thirty in the morning or eight thirty, you're going to be stuck in traffic. And yeah, uh, you know, if you, know, you I live think, in the, I say, I if you live in the outer it, suburbs, of, especially, it, it's it's some people commute as far away as West Virginia into DC. That is true. That is true. You know, I think um, 
the government has been promoting telework, and a lot of agencies weren't fully embracing it, but they had to with COVID-19. So I know the vaccinations are, are, are coming out, and hopefully here within a, you know, a few months, we'll all be vaccinated. But uh, in some of it, well, some of that traffic will come back. But I think there's been an irreversible effect that a lot more people are going to be teleworking going forward. One thing right. I could also say is that the, the government has pretty much has been a very good supporter of, of mental health. That uh, if, if particularly in the, like, for example, in the current administration, they are stressing taking care of our people and, and that they acknowledge mental health is part of that. I, I was actually going to ask. I'm glad you brought that up. What are some of the ways that the federal government takes care of its own in, in the area of mental health? In other words, you know, what, what, are, what are the resources available to a federal worker these days if, if they need mental health treatment or if they just need wellness? Yeah, I have found that the insurance coverage, which admittedly, you know, federal workers have to pay for, but the government has, has very much supported mental health coverage and, and provides very good benefits. You know, for for federal employees to seek uh, mental health if if and when they they choose to pursue it. So, I imagine with your enthusiasm for therapy and 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 I think it's it's important for folks to hear you know, you know other federal workers and even just anybody listening to this hearing that you you're an advocate for uh, the use of therapy in in, in your life and, and you said you've done it off and on. Do you have a good tangible? example of where therapy's made a huge difference in your life other than what you talked about earlier with the doodles and, and, and you're, you're as a younger person? Uh, yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm in my office and looking at it right now. It's a, well, uh, it, it's a, it's a baseball story. Ironically, when I, I mean, I'm, I'm a large person. I'm, I was a big kid and I could, um, in practice, I could hit that ball all day long and, and hit it far. But ironically, when I was in games, I would, I would choke. I would strike out. And I was telling this to the therapist and he's like, why are, why are you, why are you striking out all the time? You know, you can hit the ball. I mean, what are you thinking about when you're up there? He's like, I said, I'm worried about striking out. You know, it's one thing in practice where it's just you and your buddies, but you know, at your at a game, you got your parents and all your friends, parents in the stand, they're all screaming, they're cheering. The last thing you want to do is strike out. He's like, well, that's your problem. You're too worried about striking out. Maybe instead of thinking about striking out, you should be thinking about hitting that ball. And maybe you should be thinking about what it would feel like to run around those bases. And I was smart enough to listen. And when I was on deck going forward, instead of thinking about striking out, I was literally imagining hitting that ball. I mean, call it power of positive thinking or something like that. But that's what I did. And so I went from you know, striking out all the time and batting ninth in the lineup to batting fourth the next year, which is for those of you who know baseball, that's to the cleanup position where you put your strongest uh, power hitter. And uh, I'm looking right now at a, a, a trophy I got the, the following year for the most uh, RBIs in the league. And I mean, that was all within one or two, two years of, of, of baseball. And uh, I attribute it all to just how I approached that situation. And, and that's what therapy can give you. It, it can help you unpack an issue let you look at all the factors and, and help you consciously decide about how you want to handle it so that you can maximize the, the chance of a positive outcome. It's funny you say that. Uh, I, I my, in my own personal experience, have had the, the few times I've been in therapy, which is very few, the amount of change that is effectuated by just one suggestion like that 
you know, in other words, you talk about, you know, a block on your ability to be an athlete, you know, that, that that's lifted by a therapist. You know, I had a similar situation with, uh, you know, where, where in my own life. And so talk a little bit about that. What is it about the therapeutic approach that made it that profound of a difference in your life? Was it like an epiphany? Was it, I mean, what did, what did that feel like at the time? You know, in, in my experience with therapy, there's sometimes there's big epiphanies where you realize you've been doing something and why you've been doing it for that reason. And sometimes there's, you know, lots of uh, little epiphanies just kind of along the way to help you fine tune how you're handling stuff. I wish I, I'm trying to give you a good example of a big epiphany. Maybe that, that baseball one's probably the biggest. You know, that, that broken heart I mentioned earlier, that was a pretty big epiphany because that was when I first realized we can have a whole lot going on in the inside that we're not aware of. And if you're not sitting down talking, and it doesn't have to be a therapist, it can just be, you know, a good friend, but, you know, there's, if you're not sitting down having honest conversations with somebody about what's going on in the inside, it's going to be awfully hard to really choose the best reaction for those. I mean, a lot of people think that they can help themselves and solve their own problems, but there's just, there's no way to independently view yourself because you are yourself. What's the advice you would give someone, maybe someone who's in your similar situation, they're working for the federal government. Uh, we've all been through a tough time in the last, over the last year. And, and they're thinking about getting therapy and they're not sure whether to do it. What, what would be the advice you'd give them? Say, go do it. You get out of it what you put into it. And I mean, how valuable is the ability to look at something that's important and choose? I mean, consciously choose the course of action that helps you the most. We've all done things that we regret, big and small, probably. But I'm, I pretty much guarantee you, if you're spending time with a therapist, the chances and rate of, of making poor decisions or doing things that you're going to regret drastically go down. And in fact, the chances of positive outcomes will, will very much go up. I mentioned earlier about writing that position paper and sending it in. If I was insecure or, or, or nervous about reaching out, I, I wouldn't have done that special extra effort. And I, I, you know, therapy, I think, had something to do with that. I had a healthy self-esteem. I said, well, hey, I want this job and I'm going to do something extra to get it. And I did. Outstanding. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, we, we really love it when we have people on the show that can relate to a class of folks or a group of folks and federal workers, like I said, in the DC metro area, lifeblood of what we do. And our, and our everybody knows somebody who's associated with the federal government or works with somebody or works for the federal government around here. And your advice to them and your experience with therapy are going to be very valuable to our listeners. And, and we thank you for being here. No, thanks for what you're doing and promoting it. it uh, I think it's something we can, all, we can all benefit from. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review, and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.